In the summer of 2009, I moved from my home state of Texas to that of California, and I knew that all kinds of things were going to be different. But there were certain things that felt the same in pastoral ministry. One of those things was in my first year in ministry, I got an invitation. That particular invitation was for me to go to City Hall in Newport Beach where we used to live in order for me to go before the city council meeting and for me to go into this room and to be able to offer the invocation to be able to give a prayer for the opening of the session. And so the mayor and the city council members, lots of people have gathered together before there are gonna be any complaints, before there are going to be any debates, before there are gonna be any motions or policies or anything set in that moment, before all of that would happen, they would give me the opportunity to go to the podium and to offer a prayer, which I did. I prayed fervently for our city. I prayed fervently for the leaders, for there to be wisdom, for there to be courage, for there to be grace and understanding, for us to care for one another. I offered this prayer and I did so in the name of Jesus. When everybody said amen at the end of that prayer, the mayor thanked me, I walked out of the room for them to be able to fight on their own. And then two days later, I received a letter in the mail plus a phone call from the city attorney. It was a letter basically telling me to cease and desist in the way that I had prayed at City Hall that apparently, according to the letter, that I had prayed in a sectarian and insensitive manner. And when I called the city attorney and talked to him, he said, it's because you prayed in the name of Jesus, and we don't do that here. I said, did you realize that I was a Christian before you asked me to offer the prayer? And he said, yes. And I said, you know Christians pray to Jesus. And he says, yes, I'm aware of that. And we had this back and forth. And I said, listen, if you invite someone who is Muslim, they should be praying to Allah. If you invite someone who is a Hindu, they can pray to many gods. If you invite a Buddhist, they're not praying to any god. No matter who you invite, there is no such thing as a non-sectarian prayer. I think the Unitarian prayer is just as sectarian as mine is. We went back and forth and round in circles and really didn't get anywhere. But when that phone call hung up, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm not in Texas anymore. <laughs> and that the heat is about to turn up. You know, we're walking through the book of Acts and what happens at the beginning is this explosion of God's goodness and then the heat starts to turn up. We're talking about how to understand the book of Acts. You understand that this is the answer and the fulfillment to the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're talking about the different dimensions of kingdom as we walk through the early chapters of the book of Acts. And we talked about kingdom witness, how you and I are called to share and reflect God's goodness and then that God gives us his own presence, his spirit, and then God infuses us with his power, and that that will require us, as the heat starts to turn up, to have kingdom courage. There was this pressure against the early disciples to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, which even turned up the heat some more because they refused to be silent, and kingdom courage turned into kingdom 
threats. And so today we're going to talk about those kingdom threats. According to John Stott, when you look at this portion of the Bible, there are three kingdom threats. They are corruption, distraction, and persecution. And usually when we do a sermon, we kind of focus in on one part of one passage. Today we're zooming out and we're looking at a whole section of this portion of the Bible, three chapters. Don't worry, this sermon is not an hour long. It is a normal length sermon, but we are taking a wide angle lens of being able to see the threats that were for the early church and that are just as available for you and me. And the first threat was that of corruption in Acts chapter five. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, out brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and then you have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Here you have this very dramatic moment where Ananias goes to bring something, lies about it, and falls down dead. This is a very misunderstood story. There's a lot of people that if you were to pull them think that God strikes Ananias and then eventually his wife Sapphira dead. The text does not say anything of the sort. The shock is so great at being caught that Ananias and his wife fall immediately to death. Now the key word that's in this passage that helps us to understand it because this passage is so misunderstood and so shocking to us is this term nosphizomai, which is kind of how the Bible loosely translates it in our modern English translations as to keep it back. But it's a much stronger word than that. The only other time that the New Testament uses this word, it is the word to steal. In other words, what Ananias and Sapphira have engaged in is not just a slight misappropriation of funds, you're seeing that they are participating and complicit in embezzlement. When I first moved to uh, Houston, Texas in order to start out in ministry, when we were there, I was looking for ministries that were doing really interesting things and watching to see where is it that the kingdom is flourishing that we could really learn from them. And there was a church on the south side of Houston that was a Methodist congregation that was absolutely just flying with the gospel. The leader in that church was a man by the name of Kirby John Caldwell. He had experienced his call um, after going to Wharton Business School, incredibly gifted communicator, enthusiastic, incredible business acumen for a mind, and yet he took this distressed Methodist church in a difficult part of town and began to pull that whole community together. 
They bought a Walmart that, a Kmart actually, that had been kind of discarded as a building and they began to bring businesses and offices to that community. There wasn't a bank in their community and the church with Kirby John's leadership began to pull grocery stores, offices, and business together to that community. It was amazing to watch them proclaim the gospel and to really care for their people. That church, my friends, grew from hundreds to over 16,000, and it was incredible to go down periodically just to see all the different things that they would do. One time at a Presbyterian conference, I interviewed the pastor, Kirby John Caldwell, in Houston, and I was so proud of what they had done. And so you can imagine my shock and my dismay that last year, if you saw the news for this kind of thing, that Kirby John Caldwell was caught in a bond scheme to the tunes of $4 million, was arrested, and was going to have to spend six years in prison. This is not an unusual story in the headlines of our society, is it not? whether it's with money or with our relationships, our bodies, over and over again, the church gets black eyes from having been punched in the face from its own corruption. And yet, one of the things that we discover through all of these stories is that in spite of us, the gospel has not failed, even in those moments when there's been corruption. Not that long ago, I was meeting with somebody whose father was a prominent minister. And his father, verbally and otherwise, was incredibly abusive and angry to him. He's a very successful man now, this child who's grown up a peer of mine. And when we were walking through his story, he looked at me with tears and he said, in spite of what my father did for me and to me, it's still true. It's still true. God is still so good. The word Ananias means God has given or God has been gracious. Corruption is when we take the grace of God and we manipulate it into something that it was never meant to be. One of the commitments that you have to me as your leader is that we will work on systems and processes to make sure that we keep corruption in check. The first threat is corruption. The second threat is distraction. Let's look at chapter six together. In those days when the numbers of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebraic or kind of the Jews from Israel because of their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Here you have one of those hinge moments in the Bible where things were increasing and that there was so much to do that they were running the risk of being distracted, of not being able to stay focused on what they were called to do. That there were so many needs in the community and they were trying to run the ministry of encouraging people in God. There's two verbs in this passage. The verb overlooked, in other words, the widows were being overlooked, the care for the food was being overlooked, and there were also things being neglected, and that was the word and the ministry of prayer. In other words, if we're not careful, we can get so busy in this enterprise called church that we can overlook things and we can neglect things. A couple of years ago, I was doing a funeral here in the church. It was going to be a small family gathering, and instead of having the service here in the sanctuary or in one of our chapels, they felt like the most important environment was for people to be able to look at each other face to face, to sit in a circle and for us to pray and to encourage one another. And so we had this funeral kind of in a circular type of setting just over in the other room, over in the parlor. When I was going upstairs to go and to lead this little memorial service for this family, it was a very impacted day for me. And my assistant said to me on the way out the door, don't forget, we bought the flower bouquet that's in the room. And when you are done with the service, you are to give that flower bouquet to the family in order for them to take home and to encourage them. Got it, do the service, give the flower bouquet. And so I went over to the, to the service, we did the service together, we cried, we laughed, we celebrated, we mourned, we prayed, we sang, we did all of those things. And as I'm walking out, all of a sudden that little light bulb, because I gotta get to another appointment, that little light bulb goes above my head, Rich, don't forget to give the, don't forget to give the flowers. And so I turned back in, scanned the room quickly, grabbed a bouquet from the mantle place, gave it to the family and said, this is for you on behalf of the church. And then I walked out. Two days later, that bouquet came back to the office with a little note that says, we think this is actually yours. It turns out it was a fake bouquet that always sits there just as decoration and that there was another bouquet that was sitting on the table that was of course a real bouquet um, that now was being neglected and dying. You and I can get so busy that we can take something that is meant to be a gift, something that's meant to be genuine and trade it for something that's fake. And this happens all across our country in all of our different churches where churches tend to be focused on only one of two things. They either tend to be focused on helping people or they tend to be focused on the ministry of word and teaching and prayer. My friends, it is a rare congregation, sad to say, that stands on what you might refer to as the two-legged gospel that it is both the care for those who are in need and a strong sense of God's word and truth and to do do both of those things. 
It is one of the things that I love about you and the heritage of this congregation that for a hundred years you have cared about that two-legged gospel. And that even during this difficult time of COVID that we have remained steadfast in inviting people to our sanctuary, to teaching and preaching online, to doing all of these different things together. And in addition to that, not neglecting the needs of our community. Did you know that since the beginning of COVID, since May of 2020, we started our Feeding the 5,000 initiative and you through your generosity and your volunteer hours that we have given almost a half a million pounds of food for 384,000 meals. Think about that for a minute. Think of the number of bellies that have not gone hungry in our city because of your commitment to not a fake gospel, but to the real gospel that we pray for one another and we encourage one another and we teach one another and we stand for the timeless truths of God's convictions and we have the compassion of Christ. So easy to get distracted. The kingdom threats are corruption, distraction, and the third threat is persecution. Starting in chapter seven. At this, they cover their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, these are the crowds. And they all rushed at him, dragged Stephen out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. My friends, I wish I could tell you that this was something that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But it's not. It's happening right now. Did you know that every day, according to Open Doors International, every day 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith? that every day, 17 Christians are unjustly arrested or abducted. That right now, over 300 million Christians live in the highest alert levels of danger in the world. That's about the size of the United States. 300 million Christians live in incredible danger for their lives. Acts chapter 7 is not just something that happened long ago. Yes, we enjoy incredible freedom and privileges in this country, but many people do not have those. And that persecution is very real for them.
Many of you know that yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. You're also probably quite aware that for me, this story is incredibly personal because I was a pastor of a New York City area church at the time. I was a police chaplain in that area. And that the horrors of that day still ring true for many people and the smells and the sights and the sounds. I still remember people coming off of the train station in Summit, New Jersey, that bedroom community of Manhattan in which we lived, covered head to toe in dust, not knowing if this was a chemical or a biological attack and whether or not that we were even putting ourselves in danger. The incredible fortitude and courage of the women and men who rushed in when everyone else ran away. That for days, people went through the rubble to look desperately for loved ones, for friends, for colleagues. And that if we're not careful, the memory of the legacy of their sacrifice can fade into the recesses of our memory. I don't know if you've had a chance to go to the 9-11 memorial and to experience the museum and to see for yourself the stories, to hear the sounds and the reality of our country that was under attack on that day. Some of you know that my wife flew on a plane out of the Newark airport that day and I didn't know for many hours whether or not she was on one of those planes that hit the towers. That my wife's plane was headed towards New Orleans but was diverted here to Atlanta and that you as a congregation, before I knew any of your faces or your names, that you as a congregation were the sanctuary for my wife as she lived for about a week with the Pence family in the aftermath of 9-11 until she could get a rental car to be able to drive home. That month of 9-11, because my town in Summit, New Jersey, had the same number of people die on that day that died in World War I and World War II. It was as if our town lived through a world war in an instant. And I held the hands of a middle schooler whose parents didn't come home, hugged families, cried with police officers and firefighters who were spent. And after a month, I was completely empty and the pastor needed a pastor. I picked up the phone and called the president of Princeton Seminary, a, a dear friend, a man by the name of Tom Gillespie, and I said, Tom, I need a pastor. And he said, drive on down to Princeton, I'll feed you a really good lunch, and I'll be your pastor. And we sat over a lunch, and he let me ask raw questions that I didn't have to worry about the perceptions of what you might think of me if I asked them. Questions about, I believe that all people are created in the image of God, but how could people become such enemies of God? 
How can somebody's mind and conscience get so warped that they literally want to turn airplanes into missiles to destroy? And I asked him question after question, almost like a little punching bag. And he looked at me and he said, Richard, one of the things that came crumbling down that day when those towers came crumbling down is the myth in America that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. because those people believed in something and they believed it sincerely. And it was on that moment that a resolve started to dig deep within me, a resolve that I would continue to give the the rest of my life to helping people believe the right things about God, the right things about his kingdom, that we would not get so warped in our understanding of what was being said then that the people who did that on 9-11 had the audacity to call themselves martyrs. No, you don't get to use that word. Martyrs do not strap bombs to their chests and hurl themselves into buildings. The people who were martyred on that day were the victims who were going to work in the World Trade Center and in the Pentagon and on Flight 93. It does matter what you believe. And sometimes when you stand up for the right things, It'll cost you. Because there is real evil in this world. It was only about a week after 9-11 when a pastor in the Los Angeles area, a guy by the name of Aaron McManus, was asked by his wife, no, begged by his wife, you have to not just minister to the congregation, you have to minister to our children. They are confused, they are scared, they're seeing the images online, and they need their dad to talk to them. He walked into the room where they were all tucked in and getting ready for bed. And he sat down on the edge of the bed and he said, I want to tell you, I I want to tell you that everything's going to be okay. I want to tell you that this can't happen to you, it can't happen to your mother, it can't happen to your father, but I can't say that. Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you, you don't get to choose when you're going to die. You only get to choose whether or not you live. And with that, he prayed for him. My friends, we can no longer live under the illusion that the heat is not turning up. 
and that the corruption and the distraction and the persecution of the early church is a present danger for the world and the church, the gospel, and our community in which we live. And in spite of it all, God did not forsake the church then, and He will not forsake the church now. In a few moments, you're going to sing a hymn, in Christ alone my hope is found, He is my light my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. This is the love on which you can stand. And so let me pray for you, for us, and then let's raise our, vo- raise our voices in prayer. So let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the corruption that often sneaks into the church. And help us to do everything we can in our congregations, in our city, to fight for integrity and for justice, and to have clean hands and clean hearts. Father, we also ask that you will help us to stay focused, that we will not neglect, we will not overlook, that we will continue to preach your word and to care for people. Forgive us for giving a fake gospel when the real thing is available to us. And finally, God, we pray for the global church, for the persecution, the violence in our city, on our streets, and in the world. And Lord, I pray that you will make us peacemakers. And so God, when the heat turns up, that is when your church shines. And so in this moment, help us to grow in our courage and our conviction in the face of the threats that in Christ alone, our hope is found. Amen, and let us stand and sing together.